You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Okay, um, well, we'll kick off uh, and see how we go. Um, so, uh, my name is Kieran Wong. I'm an architect and I've just flown in from Perth. So, I've really, um, I'm a little bit out of my depth in terms of Victorian issues. So, if anyone asks me a question at the end about Victoria-specific stuff, I may pass over to some of our eminent experts here. Um, I just want to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet, the Boon people, and I pay my respects to, their, to the land here, um, their ancestors and elders. Um, and I think um, I'm very grateful to be welcomed onto this country um, as an outsider. Um, we're going to be talking tonight around indigenizing procurement, and in particular, um, one of the things that I've been talking to the panellists, which I'll introduce in a minute, um, is in a sense the title is a kind of action title. It's a call to arms to change the way we might think about what procurement means and how we might affect it, uh, in particular within the built environment. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that um, and hopefully some of our panellists can talk to that as well. Um, just a little bit um, in regards to me. So my experience and the reason that Sarah has asked me to facilitate this chat is that um, I've spent the last decade or so working primarily in remote um, Indigenous communities, mainly in Western Australia, the Northern Territory and Queensland. So the majority of my clients are um, traditional owners and native title holder organisations. Um, I very rarely work for government, but I do on occasion. Most of the time, though, my clients are um, Indigenous um, uh, organisations and with a focus primarily on housing, uh, health, education, infrastructure. Um, and uh, amongst the panel, which is a sort of mixed bag of excellence, um, we've got a, um, experienced professionals in design, delivery, development, policy, people who've worked client-side, people who've worked for government, um, for private sector, for themselves, entrepreneurs and consultants. Um, so I'll just introduce um, the panel tonight. Um, first up, uh, we've got Jill Garner. So welcome, Jill. Jill took the helm of the Office of Victorian Government Architect in 2015. Um, and she's been an advocate, public advocate for architecture and design after more than 20 years in practice. Jill's taught both at RMIT and Melbourne University in design, theory, contemporary history. She's one of the first graduates of the innovative practice-based Masters by Design at RMIT. She's a past board member and examiner for the Architects Registration Board. She chairs the National Committee for the Venice Biennale, uh, at, sorry, Venice Architecture Biennale for Australia and is a Life Fellow with the Institute of Architects. So welcome, Jill. Is that short enough? Claire, who's asked me to just to say the shortest of intros, is a, um, a fellow of the Australian Institute of Architects. She leads Claire Cousins Architecture and is the current national president of the Institute of Architects. Uh, she's an inaugural investor in Nightingale and is undertaking her own Nightingale at present, uh, which is a socially, financially and ecologically sustainable multi-residential housing model, which I'm sure you all know about it being Melbourne types, where architects lead the project both as designer and developer. Uh, and I don't have any words to introduce Sarah because she wasn't going to be on the panel up until about two minutes ago. Um, so Sarah might do her own introduction uh, because uh, apart from being a very lovely person and talking to me on the phone a couple of times when I've been in Perth, I don't know a huge amount about her background. Sarah. Thank you. Um, yes, apologies, I wasn't meant to be on this panel, but as uh, Morgan wasn't available to come, I've stepped in. Um, my name is Sarah Lynn Rees. I'm a, a, tr a trouble way Plankamay Arena woman from Tasmania um, and also have heritage in convicts and free settlers and the whole bag. 
Um, I work in, I'm a graduate uh, of architecture, so I studied at Melbourne Uni and also at the University of Cambridge as a Charlie Perkins scholar, and also have procured this uh, series, the Black Architecture series of which this is the second talk. Um, and I spend my days working in architecture at Jackson Clements Burroughs and also for Indigenous Architecture and Design Victoria. Thank you. Um, so, uh, we're going to start by talking a little bit about what procurement might mean and in particular how we might indigenize it, which is a sort of curious topic or a curious idea, I think. Um, and so I might start with uh, you, Jill, because you're the person closest to me. Um, and in a sense, it would be good to understand your particular, uh, maybe a definition of how you might consider government to procure services now and where the opportunities might lie uh, in relationship to indigenizing that process. Um, I, I think the issue of indig indigenous involvement in major projects in Victoria has reared its head, thank goodness, after, I, I think after a, a very quiet number of years and for all sorts of reasons, probably the type of, of agitation that the indigenous architectural um, group are, um, are kind of starting that wave of interest. Um, I think in, in government, the process of procurement is absolutely led by something that probably is the antithesis of what would allow for good Indigenous um, involvement, which is the issue of risk. And one of the things that horrifies me a little bit about the way government, a lot of government projects progress is that they're, um, you know, the main focus is time, money and the amount of risk attached to it. And the, the one thing that perhaps makes it difficult to insist or to agitate for a different way of doing things is probably the perception that, that involving um, an unknown, perhaps an unknown group, not quite knowing how to, how to have those conversations, not understanding how to fit them into processes that have been operating in Victoria for many years, it'll actually cause a real, uh, like a reshuffle and a bit of a rethink. And we've been interested, we've done some talking to New, in, to New Zealand who actually have quite a, um, an engaging process of, um, of discussion and project involvement. And we've been trying to work out why it seems to work there and, and the buy-in and the, the natural idea that this is a natural part of any process for any major project. So if I, if I choose a project like the Metro, um, you know, in Auckland, that was a natural place where Indigenous engagement was part of the process from day one. In Melbourne, it's um, something that's being talked about as coming in, but it's not embedded in the kind of the, the, pre the premise for the project from day one. And I think there's just this perception that it's an unknown. What does it look like? Um, what will it entail? Will it be difficult in terms of time? And therefore, is there risk attached to it in terms of delivery? That Those kind of uh, government parameters that drive projects, which are not about design. They're about a whole lot of other things. So at the moment, there is no model within, say, Victorian Government Architect's Office to engender a discussion with departments around a process 
of understanding where they're working and what lands upon they're working? I think oh, there, there's certainly discussion, but but you know I think the discussion is slight in a slightly misaligned way, more about um, perhaps an art program or those sorts of perhaps representational or um, uh, applied discussions, rather than something deep that actually goes to the point of the fact that we're disturbing land. And in a way, that's what is not talked about. Okay, so Claire, as the national president, I'm going to throw to you in your, with your hat on as the Institute of Architects representative here. Um, do you think there's a role for architects to play then in a space where there isn't such a strong sense of communication or requirement of, say, a policy setting by government uh, to agitate and understand and maybe uh, advocate to clients around a role of thinking about indigenizing the procurement process itself? Or do you feel like we're too far down the stream of that decision process to make any change? Um, <clears throat> I, I completely... I, I do think that, that it's um, a role that the profession needs to take and that... Uh, the, I know the Institute certainly has... There was a policy that we put out a couple of years ago, but the challenge sometimes with these policies is they get written, um, endorsed by National Council and then put on the website and sometimes they go back into the drawer. And so I think the important thing is about that, as Jill said, that agitation and making sure that... It, that there is that awareness about it. I think um, I think the challenge that we face currently with modes of procurement across the... The, the profession is facing so many challenges across the, the board in procurement um, that this is one very important area, but it's one of so many. And, and I think, um, without sounding, you know... Um, pessimistic or like that we're, we're whinging, you know, but the, the, there's such a need, I think, for architects to be brought to um, the table much earlier than the time that they're looking to build a building. And this is a, a challenge I think the profession faces is um, not calling on um, architects as design thinkers to think about um, what a solution might be. Um, there's certainly been discussion, I was talking before, about... Um, I think there's some t there's certainly um, practitioners who are far more au fait with processes and protocols and you're certainly one of them doing an enormous amount of your work is involved in, in that and as is Sarah. Um, and I think one of the challenges maybe the profession faces is actually that um, how, how does the profession understand and learn those protocols. Um, and one thing Sarah was saying before is the importance that now most of the design architecture universities are actually embedding that as part of their learning. And so the next generation of architects, it will almost become normalised. And that, so, which is great. Um, but the challenge we've got now is the catch-up of all of us who graduated a long time ago. Um, it's something that we've, we've also been talking about with the national conference next year, which is in Melbourne, in that... Um, how can we actually have, say, a session, for example, where we have elders that come and actually have this conversation about what are the right approaches? Because it's, a, it's almost a little bit embarrassing sometimes that architects don't actually know what is the right protocol and to actually bring elders and people who work in that space in. Because I think too often it's, particularly in Victoria, it's a little out of sight, out of mind, and that's the challenge. It's not um, a lot of our um, colleagues in WA and NT, it's really common and prevalent and particularly, you know, Indigenous housing and all kinds of um, forms of engagement. But I think it's it's a little out of sight and out of mind and there are a lot of channel challenges and there's a long way for the profession to go in really, I suppose, helping to champion what is the right approach. And so, Sarah, sorry, can I come? Are you about to say something?
Um, Sarah, I might just ask you then to follow on. In, in terms of that process of this emergent generation of architects, of which you're one, uh, are you sensing within that emerging um, generation a sense or an understanding or a greater confidence in working with the idea of working on traditional land or working with clients or stakeholders that actually have maybe not direct um, project authority but cultural authority over the areas in which you're working? I think the, from the generation of people that I studied with which were, who are now the sort of graduates and becoming architects at the moment, you're facing the same situation as, as probably your own education, um, all of you. I mean, we didn't study anything Indigenous when I went to Melbourne Uni in my undergrad. Uh, that's changed a lot now. Um, so there is a process of indigenizing that curriculum. But it did mean that, you know, there was no critical debate. There was nobody who, none of the tutors were able to stand up and say anything in response to what you've designed. And if you embedded any indigenous elements into your project, um, then it would get glossed over and sort of put to the side and, and no one would engage with it. And that's a problem because we need our educators to be able to critically engage in that situation. I'm going off topic. But um, I think the... The, yes, I think there is a hunger to be able to work on these projects in a socially and culturally appropriate way, but there's still the lack of knowledge of how to do that. I, I think we're all a little nervous about how to approach it too because there, there's not that learning. We haven't learned how to have those conversations that I have to say um, there's a nervousness about, gee, am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to offend someone? Um, and I've been thinking about... Um, yeah, in involvement. And involvement really, from my point of view, should probably be as early as there are five sites that have been chosen for, you know, a particular project. Which site in, you know, if you actually cast the review of the sites through the Indigenous lens, which of those sites actually ticks the box as far as that project goes? And right back at that, there might be several sites that are actually completely inappropriate for that particular type of development. So it, it does occur to me that it's, it's a complete shift in engagement and in, um, in the questions that get asked of whom at a, per, at a particular time and that it might go right back to what is the right place for this project. Because it strikes me that a lot of the discussion is not so much about what an Indigenous kind of approach might look like, but actually what an Indigenous process might put into place in the way that we actually decide what a project should be, where it should be, who we talk to, who the client is, and then obviously what it emerges in looking like as well. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the major challenges that we find in relationship to the work that we do for our clients is that the processes that they're often required, um, and when I say the process that they, being kind of generally native title holders, um, are being sort of required to meet um, certain kind of milestones for reporting or thresholds for funding or whatever it happens to be. And those things are very linear and they have a very in, a sort of a described and prescribed set of requirements. And they're often um, not, in many people's mind, and in particular the funders or the government's mind, they're not necessarily interlinked stages. They're often completely independent, whether they're a feasibility then leads to a business case, which leads to a project, which may lead to a funding outcome. But in the eyes of our clients, it's a continuum. And 
one of the challenges that we find as architects, and one of the reasons I tend to try not to work for government, <laughs> is because government view these packages as opposed to kind of long-term relationships. And I think that one of the challenges for a procurement when you talk about risk is this idea of, well, we can't just engage people for five years on the basis that there may be a project coming, right? <laughs> we only will engage them once we know exactly what that thing looks like and how much it's going to cost and how much we can fund. And then it's very difficult as an architect to come in because at that point all the decisions have been made. So I think one of the sort of issues in a way when we talk about procurement and probably back to Claire's point which is that it's challenging for all of us in a certain environment in architecture is it's a much more compartmentalised and sort of set of very distinct phases that we're undertaking as architects typically. I wonder Claire then if you might sort of talk to an experience around how the Institute is considering kind of, I guess, uh, progressing or may progress this idea beyond policy setting of thinking about how we may influence procurement? Good question. <laughs> the key question. <laughs> That's right. Um, I mean, I think, I think sometimes it's a bit like um, champ advocating the need for champions in areas and Jill is one of those champions. So she's the... Um, government architect um, and so an architect essentially embedded in government who has to, uh, you know, I suppose be agnostic and agitate, or, and agitate absolutely, agitate for the power and, and often that person is sitting in a precarious position because you're within government but you're, you're trying to push an agenda which, um, which benefits the built environment and benefits the cities and the, and the communities. I think the same really um, should be said for... Um, having those other kind of champions to, um, and we were talking about it just before, you know, whether it be within an institution, I think RMIT is becoming very active in that um, and developing their RAP, their reconcilia Reconciliation Action Plan further um, beyond um, acknowledgement and much more proactive. Um, and similarly in government, because the challenge we, we know that we face with government, I mean, they're, they're the biggest procurer of public buildings and I think therefore have the most responsibility to be delivering um, responsibly um, and so the challenge we've got with election cycles that we've got you know different politicians and people sitting in these seats for so you know so changing over so frequently uh, the importance to have someone that potentially is um, in their seat for a longer period of time building relationships with communities and has a vested interest much like the government architect does for the profession um, has a vested interest in, in in representing communities and what's what the right approach is and I think also uh, touching on what Jill said before about even selecting sites, I suppose what heightens that challenge these days is with how uh, development is, is approached appropriately in the density of our, densifying our cities. That There's not always going to be an ability to choose alternative sites. So it's about looking at, you know, I suppose what are the appropriate ways? Um, is it through, you know, storytelling or is it, you know... I mean, you look at... Europe um, or England, when they're doing projects that have got archaeology, you know, seen as Saxon sites from however many hundred years ago, that, that, that you know, someone's trying to build a house and they're literally sort of going through and literally checking before with every shovel that they pull out of. And it's it, that, that process has been embedded in so many other modern colonised um, societies and really, anyway, there's a long way to go. Yeah. I mean, I think what. Um, one of the major sort of um, 
conceptual challenges about thinking about indigenizing procurement is that there's a kind of institutionalized racism within much of the procurement systems that we have, whether it's for services or for, um, for the built environment or, um, and I see it a lot in the Northern Territory, a little bit less so in Queensland and WA, but there is a, and um, Morgan Coleman, who is gonna be here tonight, who's the dog guy, um, and I had a couple of very entertaining chats on the phone before I came over here. Um, and he told me this story, which I'm sure he'll be happy to, for me to tell on his behalf, which is, he's a sort of interesting fellow, and he's a kind of tech entrepreneur. He has this, I don't know, something with um, some app, some vets on call app or something, right? And he, part of the way in which the government in Victoria apparently set up some, um, you know, felt like a utopia moment, the kind of tech startup fund or something, um, and part of that fund included a fund for indigenous advancement, right? Something of those words, I can't remember exactly the words of the fund. And so he thought, well, that's great because, you know, he's an indigenous man, I've got this tech startup, it's running very successfully in Victoria, we're trying to expand, I need some more capital to kind of grow the tech side. So he applied and he got this response back from government that said, yeah, this is really a fund to assist and support indigenous people. And he said, that's right, that's, that's me, right? And they said, no, 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 but you're just doing a thing which is enhancing your app and we're looking for people to actually help indigenous people. And so the conceptual nature of the fund was developed in government and they thought, there's no way that you could have an indigenous tech entrepreneur. Like that's like impossible. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna fund the tech entrepreneurs who are, you know, I don't know what they thought they were, white guys, Indian guys, who knows? We're gonna fund those guys to try and help indigenous people, right? So that's a kind of classic model. And you often find in the construction sector and in the built environment, there's a sort of notion that you can't expect there to be indigenous professionals. You, you're more likely to find the indigenous guys on the end of a shovel, right? So that kind of, it's built into the way the procurement model often works because it starts to suggest what they expect the indigenous contractor or contracting company or whatever they happen to be to kind of look like. I think that that's a kind of challenge in a way um, to the way in which government thinks because it's a little bit like anything we know whether it's about gender bias or something else if you've got 12 white guys in a room trying to come up with a policy it's very likely it'll be a policy that's very good for white guys right so um we have to kind of think about a different way of thinking about it i guess in that sense and so indigenizing the procurement process might require a little bit of the way in which the institute of architects has tackled say gender equity as an example, which has been, I think, relatively successful in kind of raising that awareness profile. Um, so that's not a question to you, that's like a statement, but I was, trying to, I was trying to add like another panelist virtually there by telling you Morgan's story, so it felt like there was someone else here. Um, okay, so we've covered Morgan's now story. Um, so I'd like to come back to you, Sarah, about this kind of role of black architecture and the kind of, the, one of the conversations in a sense around procurement, um, which is really around how we, as ar architectural professionals, kind of put ourselves forward as being kind of um, ha having the ability to even kind of work or, or kind of um, uh, engage with indigenous stakeholders or clients. And that's the challenge for, you know, people like us, you know, uh, who might find that kind of a bit nerve-wracking. But I wonder if there's a way in which the kind of role of, um, you know, uh, agitators and, and the idea of blackness in the kind of architectural professional space is on the rise as well. Is that something that you're seeing within Victoria or are you seeing that sort of nationally through some of the research that you're doing? 
the way that blackness is coming into the profession, okay, um, I think that there's a growing number of Indigenous built environment practitioners and that means there's a growing voice and that is certainly helping advance the conversations. And quite often, I think, I mean, the people who work in IADV or people who work, work Indigenous people working in different places around Australia get leaned on quite a lot to be involved in a lot of different... Um, whether it's education, whether it's um, the government architect's office in New South Wales, any of those sort of positions. And so there's a lot of demand and I think that it, um, that means that people are interested, people want to be socially responsible and it's not feeling like a tick box exercise, at least from where I'm sitting. Uh, the things that I've been asked to be involved in have been genuine... Um, people are genuinely interested in doing the right thing. And I do agree that there's a fear that people feel like they're going to do or say the wrong thing or they're paralysed by this notion of um, of screwing up, which is, I mean, you can bypass all of that by entering any sort of negotiation relationship with an Indigenous community going, look, I don't, I don't know this. I don't know that what I'm doing is right or wrong. Um, I'm going to ask that you tell me if I do something wrong so that I don't do it again. And if you say that, you negate any problems of doing the wrong thing, you remove your ego and you go in and you be humble and you act with integrity and respect um, the, the cultural authority that those communities have. I think I'm going round and round in circles about what you asked me, but I think um, there's... Yes, I feel like there is change, um, but it need, there needs to be more of it. It can't just be Indigenous practitioners. It has to be the profession as a whole. I thought it was interesting many years ago when clearly the legal profession had a huge push to actually bump up the representation of Indigenous lawyers. And I think uh, even 60s and 70s, it, it became a profession of choice for those who actually wanted to agitate for their own um, culture. And I understand the accountants went through a phase where they also said, we are going to get a whole lot of Indigenous professionals into our industry because then we're actually a, a, little, a little flatter across and we've got more representation. And it strikes me that there... Um, I think the IADV it has got quite a task to actually um, raise the profile and encourage Indigenous involvement in the built environment because, you know, as soon as it becomes a bit more normalised and there's a lot more, then we will all relax a little bit and we'll realise it's just a discussion and that openness will be um, just what we all do. And I, I think that um, there's so few Indigenous qualified architects around Australia that I can imagine. And while I'm, I'm really pleased you don't feel like it's a tick box, I think I do see in quite a lot of projects that, that there are... There are members of our profession who represent their culture and, yeah, quite often feel like they're there to tick the Indigenous box and, and they're not quite sure um, how, to, how to perhaps get the designers to do their own thing but through having had input from them. You know, what, what sort of input can, can you give in terms of the way to approach the project that's not holding the design hand, because it's not about that. It's about, it's about just information exchange, stories maybe. Maybe there's a narrative that might inspire something. So the in engagement is, is one of, of um, many different levels, I think. And it just feels like the more we can encourage um, Indigenous students 
to, to pursue architecture and all the other parts of the profession that are engaged with the built environment, then the better off we'll be. I think at the moment there's maybe eight registered Indigenous built environment practitioners. Not very many over the whole of Australia. Which is 0.07% of all architects. Um, and to get population parity, we'd need 333 Indigenous architects. So, yeah, Australia-wide, Australia yeah. Um, and I think the, uh, the biggest problem when uh, in my involvement in mentoring Indigenous students who are in universities is they don't see themselves reflected in the curriculum or the environment. And that is a huge problem. And that's also why, you know, I guess my long game is to indigenize the built environment. And part of that is creating a presence, an Indigenous presence at the place that you're in. And that's not tokenistic dot paintings on a wall. That's not a boomerang. That's none of those things. It's about embedding the core values of the community in the project. And so... I think there's a step before all of this that is setting up what those core values of that site and that project are with the community, with the traditional owners, and that being the decision-making matrix. That's you measure everything against those core values, which I don't think happens. I mean, you have more experience in this than I do, both all of you, but um, that's that to me is the missing step. If we set that up at the beginning, then everything can then always come back to that that core. I think the, the challenge in some ways is there's a kind of question around um, empowerment but of the communities in which you're working and the land on which you're working and, and um, who gets to speak uh, for it. And if, um, you know, it's quite different to work with an organisation that has land, right, that is economically empowered and it goes beyond being just a stakeholder, right? So that's that's one conversation. And I know that um, we're not going to talk about the treaty tonight. That's, we've, we've covered that quickly. We're not, we're not going to that ground tonight. Um, but I do think it's interesting, this idea that, in fact, there is this possibility um, that the treaty negotiations within Victoria may start to empower communities, right? And that makes people very fearful, which is possibly the reason why the Andrews government is selling surplus land so fast. Um, but it also means that you're, you enter into a conversation in quite a different way. And the reason I talked about blackness was because, a little bit like you're saying, Jill, in the legal profession and other professions, there was a kind of radicalization and the, the realization that for things to change, Aboriginal people or First Nations people in all sorts of countries actually had to get into the system in a certain way to kind of revolutionize it, right? And I think that once you, if you can, I mean, the, the model in a sense of that empowerment, that engagement, can only come, I think, through a kind of level of activism in the first instance, uh, and then be hopefully supported by an empowerment of community. And that's often in Australia through land, land ownership or land authority. Um, so I think that, for me, that feels like where the model needs to work. And at the moment, what I guess I don't see, unlike in the legal profession, is a kind of activism within architecture, right? So that's kind of the, the question I was trying to get to, and is where is that political drive, is it, does it exist or does it occur, or is in fact there a kind of disengagement from the built environment or something that doesn't impact on Indigenous communities like the legal profession did? That was kind of where I was getting to. Um, one thing that comes to mind though is that <clears throat> the challenge we've got is with self-regulation self or people self-instigating appropriate processes. And I think, I mean, one good example is... Um, Amy Muir, the Victorian president, said at the Victorian Awards this year when she did a, a talk that there was a statistic along the lines of, I think in 2000 and, 
18 or um, there were over two, nearly 2,500 public or education buildings um, produced and there were something like 35 entries into the awards. And so that it was less than 1% are entered, way less, 0.1%. Um, and so the, the reason for that statistic was more to show if we're, if we're delivering all of these public and educational buildings, 2,500 per year getting occupancy permits and only 32 are getting submitted, what's wrong with the rest of them? You know, and I know that you don't have to, just because you don't enter it into the wards doesn't mean it's not valid. But I suppose why I'm saying that is that there are so many things that architects are trying to deliver and they're up against a developer cutting out the cutting out des basic design or sustainability principles and those kind of things. So, while architects are often, um, or there's this challenge of um, regulation, but maybe it needs to go down the path of, um, like you know, disability access. You know, where it actually is a process, and that's something that you know, having DDA consultants or um, needing to comply with to allow wheelchair access into you know shops or public buildings didn't really exist 10, 20 years ago. But going through that process where there's a compulsory um, consultation or compulsory layers, unfortunately, while we all sort of get sick of the, the amount of red tape and regulatory framework that we have to often practice in, I really think sometimes unless there's those layers, it, I can't really see a lot happening because you're relying on so few that are going to act. Um, and you know, I don't know what you think, Jill. Um, Actually, I, um, regulation and red tape, yeah, it's pain, but um, that particular example, like universal design, yeah, 30 years ago we all thought it added cost and space and no-one wanted to do it. And now we've realised that the need for it outweighs the complaints against it, so it's just embedded and so we just do it. I think, I think with the, um, you know, with the indi Indigenous discussion it's it's an educate i think it's an educational thing because when we learn to read a site or read a context you know I, I do a lot of design reviews i have a lot of architects stand in front of me and you ask for a contextual analysis i, I reckon one out of a hundred would say this site is actually i mean deep in this site is actually about this they normally start somewhere else and say this site's about this. So to me, maybe there's something in the education of architects that actually um, links us back to the real fundamental discussion about indigeneity, which is about place. And I've, I've been quite interested in one of the discussions I've had quite recently, because I was on the national awards, and one of the interesting things about the national awards was the number of places around Australia that were named after Indigenous people. And it was said to me, this is a very strange thing to do because, in fact, really, if this was to represent an Indigenous approach, it should be named after the place because the place is perennial. It's always here. It's on the banks of a river or it represents a rock or a tree or whatever it happens to be. But a person is not forever. They're kind of there for a certain amount of time. So why would you call Barangaroo, Barangaroo? That's a very, it's a very non-Indigenous thing to do. And that, that was a huge learning for me. So to actually be on the National Jury with someone who talked to me, I was, I had um, Kevin, 
O'Brien with me and to actually walk around Australia with him telling me about the Indigenous approach when the claim for indigeneity in quite a lot of the projects was there. But it was so interesting to kind of engage some of those discussions. And, it, and so, yeah, Birurung Ma, fantastic. We all know it's, it's an appropriate place name. But when we, when we call something the William Barrack Bridge or the Barrack Building or something like that, it's, it's not... The roots of it are not perhaps what it should be. But we need to learn that. If we don't know that, we kind of don't carry it through. And having... Sorry to dominate here, but um, the, the other comment I was going to make too, the very first project I did where I did have to engage with a local Indigenous community, where I very proudly arrived in the city of Port Phillip with my drawings of what they were going to get, and I was asked by Auntie Carolyn at day one, can you just take them off the wall? We're not interested in looking at drawings... We'd like you to talk to us and tell us about what you're doing. Wave your hands around. Tell us what happens at this part of the site and this part of the site. And I was actually mortified that I didn't know that that's the way that I should meet those those uh, local people. And and so I felt like in my architecture course somewhere there should have been training, if you like, to actually understand how to engage. Well, that's a question of motivation. That's the, you know, I think you were talking about before and you go into community and then you go back and then you go back for a variety of different reasons. The first time you go to a community, it's about building a relationship. It's not about the project. It's about understanding that the community going, who are you and why are you here and what, are you, what is your intention? And if you, don't, if you don't meet that, then that's not going to be a productive relationship. And so you're right. If you go in with drawings and go, this is what's going to happen, people are going to be like, no, sorry. <laughs> Who are you? Yeah, I mean, I think I can't speak because I haven't really worked in um, a lot of urban contexts, but the, um, the, the, the biggest um, challenge that we have and one of the reasons why I keep saying I don't work for government, don't work for government, is because it's very difficult to get briefed um, uh, and be paid for, therefore, um, the, the role and the way in which you, I believe, you need to in, be able to engage with communities that you're working with, which is to go in and have a chat, introduce yourself, actually work out if it's going to work or not, you know, which in the places where I work where it might take a day or two to get there, um, that can be any kind of a time and consuming and expensive process. So being able to work directly with um, Aboriginal organisations and saying, the way in which we have to work is a kind of different model. And this is the bit which I think is, I think personally, um, an opportunity as more and more communities become empowered through land in the first instance, um, is to actually change the model of procurement and the way in which people are kind of um, engaged to work with traditional owners or custodians of land. Away from a model which is the model we have now, which is a very kind of linear project management milestone kind of model and to something which is much more relational and long-term um, the idea that there might be a relationship through kind of a shared custodianship of you know process yeah and so but that's a very difficult thing to either bid on or price or tell a government okay well what we're going to do for the first six months is I'm just going to go into community right and just have a few chats and then I might come back and then we'll have another chat and then I'll go back in, in a year's time and, you know, and you just can't do projects like that. So it's, it, that transformation, I think, to a way, almost to a model which is much more a kind of 
partnership retained services model or something is the kind of model that I'm interested in, whether, you, whether we could even get to as a way of procuring services. I think it's a really interesting question and I, I guess right at the start, my comment about government and Claire's mentioned also the difficulty that architects are having with the procurement models that are around the culture of procurement that's in Melbourne or in Victoria at the moment, which is actually um, shows this incredible trust of building contractors over and above the designers and the building contractors are being in, brought in earlier and earlier and earlier in the interest of achieving time and cost. And so, yeah, the, the idea of actually introducing the wild card, which is the, the conversation and the engagement with the future client, would send government into conniptions. They just, you know, we're, we're struggling as architects to actually try and hold on to the design development stage of a project, which doesn't seem to exist anymore. We're kind of throwing our schematic designs to the builders who are interpreting them in some way. It's, it's really hard, that process at the moment. So what you'd kind of need to do is almost suggest, I don't know, a project that might be a test case and something that's valuable to the community that you, that you propose a, a pilot or something maybe that's done differently and you kind of put time in up front before you've actually written the brief. And all that time that government takes all the, you know, the ten white men sitting around the table writing the brief, if that was actually used in a completely different way, you might actually leapfrog into the project in a much more advanced state than it would be otherwise. Yeah. But you'd be brave. Government would need to be very brave, I think, to take that move. I agree. I think sometimes it is actually having successful case studies to show the process and how it's happened. And as you said, there were quite a number of Indigenous projects that won at the National Awards last week or the week before and um, that and some of them were much smaller and they were architects working directly with communities in Tasmania and but there were some larger projects you know you had the privilege of going and seeing them all but sometimes actually about sort of um, highlighting how that process what is a successful process and how can it be I think it's trying to find that tension between um, yeah contemporary um, procurement processes, but actually maybe can inspiring appropriate ways of working with communities might actually help inspire new ways of procurement for the profession too, in actually showing these um, the importance of those um, long relationships, um, which, as Jill said, you know, are not happening at the moment and the architect is often the last person engaged on the project. Um, so often case studies are a good way to try and explain and show and... It's something more tangible that government can actually see time, see t see budgets, see that it didn't, you know, fall over and actually have got something tangible that they can go and visit. So we're being very architect heavy here because it's a panel of architects and the two Indigenous developer uh, uh, and Indigenous client side reps who are meant to be here tonight aren't here. So um, I, I feel what we might do is if there's anyone who's got... A, I'm going to ask another couple of questions, but if you've got a question that you'd like to ask any of us... Um, then you can, re that's very quick. I need to, t that was very quick, more than quick than I thought. There's a person, um, Stacey, yes, you've got the microphone. Why don't we go straight to your question? You seem so keen. <laughs> just knock that on the head. <laughs> um, you 
just said that this is a big architectural talk because the four of you are architects, but I'm interested in your next part of your sentence, which was that the developers who work with Indigenous architects are not here. So what do you think they would say, given that one is um, predisposed with a dog problem? Uh, what, what would they say that was different to a uh, developer working with a non-Indigenous architect? You're asking us to talk on their behalf or imagine something in... Imagine. Yeah. Mm. Any of you want to have a crack at that? Did, he not, did, you, did you have a chat last week? No. I did have a chat to Morgan, but I'm not mainly about that tech thing, which was pretty super interesting. Um, I, I think one thing that I did talk to uh, Morgan about in relationship to the idea of development was this kind of question that I had because I was very curious, being a kind of naive fellow that I am. And I said, you know, there's this sort of tension in a way you know, the communities that I work in are probably much more the communities where every, when you think indigenous architecture, you immediately think sort of desert and, you know, pitched roofs and people struggling with dust and all that sort of stuff. So they're the kind of communities that I tend to work in, but in a fact, in a way, the majority of indigenous people live within, you know, cities and in urban kind of conurbations. And so it, I had this sort of question around the tension between the kind of level of density um, that you know typically is required of sites, like the kind of the, the, the level that you have to push a site to make it val valuable and valid within a context like Melbourne, um, versus what we typically deal with when we're dealing with native title holders, which is really this sort of kind of you know there's the oversupply of land. It's the other way around in a way. Um, and his kind of response to me to that question, because I was sort of curious, was more this issue that said, well, all land is kind of valuable, right? <laughs> obviously, um, but the kind of model in which we think about how to kind of extract um, uh, the kind of the gain from that land is shared in a different way in his mind. I mean, this is what he said to me. It's shared in a different way when you're dealing with an indigenous client. So the client is then thinking about the other things that they can do with that kind of um, the outcome from the project. So that So his model is a kind of much more socially minded model. Uh, I don't know whether that's a particular indigenous thing or with his thing or, or not. I mean, he used to work for Lendlease, which is a kind of different kind of development model, but he left there. Um, but I do think there is a kind of a difference in the way in which land is valued, not as a transactional commodity, but as something that is something that's held and lasts a long time. And therefore, the importance of thinking about it is something that he was trying to communicate. You know, that was the thing that we talked about where actually it doesn't matter whether you're working in a kind of remote context or an urban context, that often there's a kind of development mindset that's very transactional as opposed to something where you have a relationship with that forever. So that's quite a different... And that's quite a different way of thinking about land, which is what we talked about, yeah. I, I might add something to that. Um, just an observation, really, that you made me think about the architecture biennale this year in Venice, um, which was... Focused. I mean, one of the premises behind it was that um, the Victorian grasslands, the native grasslands, have gone from being, you know, 100% native grasslands for the last 60,000 years, if you like, or, or however, however long our Indigenous community have occupied Victoria, um, have gone in the last 180 years or whatever it is of, uh, of, of uh, colonial occupation, etc. forward, um, we're down to 
of the same um, area of grasslands. And, I, and what I think is intriguing about that, apart from the damage that we do as a society in terms of building and architecture and infrastructure and, um, and change, is that idea of damage. And I, I think that's one of the absolutely fundamental differences in viewing the way we occupy land. You know, we change, we change um, the system, we change the ecology, we demolish, uh, you know, we dig, we remove stuff. It, we don't repair it. So that, that issue of, um, of damage, I think that's one of the, my biggest takeouts, I think, of, of that different headspace. So I don't think it's just your developer. I, th I, think, I don't think that's just him. No. I think that's absolutely embedded in an Indigenous way of looking at something. If you take something away, you actually make sure you don't damage permanently. And that, that's something that we as architects, I mean, as a premise for all the work we do, that we should be able to do that. We should be able to be aware that if we, if we take something away, we need to repair it or, or not damage it to the extent that we could. I think there was a, you, ha you had a question. We've got a few hands now. Stacey, you're on the move. Sorry, I'm wasting precious question time. I kind of interpreted that as being kind of the conflict between the models of being, on one hand, how do we um, develop this piece of land to the best benefit of the land and the community which the land supports, as opposed to we have this project, which piece of land do we stick it on? Would you say that that's, um, well, not exactly accurate, but has a certain level of accuracy to it? Yeah, I think um, I, I'm starting to get a little um, uncomfortable with this idea that I might be speaking for Morgan now. So I'm just going to say that I'm not speaking for Morgan anymore. But I do think the thing that I've um, come to realise working a lot um, and interfacing with Indigenous clients on a very regular basis is that I have really no idea about the level of connection and the depth of understanding of country that my clients have. Like, it's just somehow, it's like off the charts. And I just, so it's very difficult to sometimes even kind of talk, like describe it in a way that kind of makes sense. Um, so I think, yeah, you, you have to kind of, there is this sort of idea of going into a different mindset working within um, all indigenous, you know, primarily indigenous communities, that there is a kind of understanding of that place that, you know, you know, we might do a sketch or an understanding of this or that or, or a study, but there's a kind of other connection, you know, like uh, it's talking of sort of land cycles which are, you know, 4,000 years old or understanding certain um, fire cycles that are 400 years, land cycles, you know, so these things which just, oh yeah, well that happens every 400 and something, you know, 400 years. Like that's a kind of notion of time which is sort of and place that is very difficult to comprehend. So I think um, our understanding of land around, you know, what we believe we own and what we can transact on it is quite different. And that part of it, I think, is to, to be able to kind of work in a way that's um, respectful of that understanding is to be able to at least acknowledge that it's like 
way outside your skill set and comfort zone. So I, I, for me, it's a very diff diff different kind of and difficult conversation around what that might mean, value and land, yeah. You also don't need to know all that information to be successful designing a building. To a certain extent, uh, the role we play, I think, as architects is being a vessel to figuring out what the design is going to be on that land, trusting the guidance of the traditional owners and they have the cultural authority to tell you what you're doing right and wrong. But you don't need to know what that connection to that country is to be able to be a successful architect on an Indigenous project. You know, we talk about this concept of country all the time, but does anybody really understand what that is? Um, and, like, you know, there's... If you listen to Wurundjeri, there's seven different layers of country. There's the, the, the on top of the surface, there's below the surface, there's in the water, there's in the sky. There's all these different things. There's winds that move around, it's directional. Uh, it's all layered, but you don't, like, I don't understand that. And I'm obviously not Wurundjeri, but you can still work with the community. And as long as you're open to listening and then acting on that listening, then, then you'll be able to design something with respect on that country. Yeah, I think it just takes a while for you to get your head into gear of thinking that it's like the people that I w work for have never ceded sovereignty, <laughs> right? So that's like a kind of mind-blowing concept as a kind of private consultant to work in a place where, you know, it's a sovereign nation that you're working for and that takes time to get your head around. So anyway, so question. Uh, it's not working. Oh, yeah. Um, the Sydney Harbour Bridge almost bankrupt the state of New South Wales and a lot of the resources from Australia are owned by foreign companies. Um, what progress has been made on the Melbourne Metro is one of the stations going to be given to the Indigenous community. And um, the second question I have is, is, is there a possibility of maybe remixing a, a miking machine to, you know, fund, fund the Indigenous community? That's a question for the Victorians. I don't know. I'd love to say yes. I'd love to say yes to all that, but I really can't. I mean, obviously, the metro is embedded in those sorts of procurement processes that we talked about before. That that government's gone out um, to three different tendering parties. Someone's won it, and they are working to um, through a through a public-private partnership, they're working to achieve it by a certain date. And from what I see, every single time some, some comment gets brought in that threatens the opening of a metro station or something like that, throws everybody into chaos because it's actually, presumably time is money, so it's all very intertwined there. So, um, I mean, there's, there's some really interesting discussions with, with Melbourne's Indigenous community going on with the Metro, which is really pleasing to see. I'm not party to them, so I don't know what they are, but I am told that they, they are happening and that there is discussion. There's also some really interesting archaeological stuff happening. I don't know if anyone's sort of been watching Swanston Street next door to the Nicholas Building where... Um, John Batman's school is being dug up. You know, we, we discussed what happened in, in London. But that's being dug up. That's one layer of um, something quite interesting that's being uncovered, um, which is obviously a colonial layer. Um, and, and we, from our point of view, are saying, oh, well, you know, this is so interesting, but it's actually going to be um, knocked down. 
It's going to be recorded and it's in the way. So I would love to say, well, hang on, what are we going to do about it? Surely we can change the design so we somehow embed like, like they do in Rome or in, uh, you know, if you, ca if you find a Saxon ruin, you encapsulate it somehow so you can con consistently experience it and understand it. But my understanding is that it's not going to happen and it's all being recorded and then it will be removed, which seems a terrible shame. So it's, it's a classic case of an absolutely major project with its own process that um, is builder-led, contractor-led, um, led by what the engineers can do in terms of tunnelling and capacity and time and money. And, um, and, and we do our best to sort of agitate from, from the design point of view to make sure that the right questions are being asked and that the right quality is being addressed. And, and the Indigenous question is one that's a little bit much of an overlay for me. I mean, it would have been really great if they were there, like Auckland, who I understand were there at day one as part of the discussion. I just had a pessimistic... Anyway, just a pessimistic obs observation with regards to government. Um, and you Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think what's so challenging and um, is that uh, our politicians today don't even value our recent culture in... I mean, it's a big overarching statement, but when we have issues where they're proposing to knock down 15, 17-year-old public buildings... Um, and Tim Ross gave a, a, a talk at the, the address at the press club last week in Canberra on sort of contemporary heritage. And I think that that is a real struggle and it's sort of a, a side parallel, but that thing of when they don't value those almost antiquities that are under the ground or even our recent cultural experiences and the importance of um, buildings being here for a long time and public buildings... How do we ever expect them to even understand these concepts where someone such as yourself primarily works in this area and is uh, completely um, engaged and open-minded and curious about um, processes and learning um, without ego? That I suppose that's the great challenge we've got is how can we ever expect government and politicians to ever go in there without some form of regulation? Yeah. And, and you'd say also over the top of that, the way our government system works, where we have this four-year cycle of production, how much conversation can happen in four years? I would imagine next to nothing. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to go back to your question. I mean, I don't know anything, but the Mikey, that's the thing you tag on and tag off, right? So it, strike, it struck me as kind of curious. I, I don't know I don't know any of the background to the question that you asked. So this is me coming in like super nut, like I'm beyond naive here. I but think you're talking about how the Opera House raised some funds. Yeah, so I was... Oh, no, you weren't. You were talking about Sydney Harbour Bridge. Sydney Harbour Bridge. But I want to talk yep. about Mikey, which... And this might be... I'm totally off topic here. So this... Anyway, we'll see how we go. But I'm in charge, right? So I can do whatever I want. Okay, so one of the things when I talk about empowerment is that um, a lot of the clients that I work with are empowered through royalties, right? So they are paid a royalty stream from a mining company typically because the mining company has entered into a commercial agreement with the traditional owners of the land to say, we're going to extract this much whatever and we're going to give you half a percent of profits, you know, something, right? We're going to give you a land agreement for, that pays you money. Every time we dig a tonne, we're going to give you this much money. So as an example, um, like I'm going on Wednesday to a place called Groot Island, which is basically an island made of pure manganese, right? 
So they've been mining manganese, the most profitable manganese mine in the world um, for a very long time. And the Anisliaqua people, the, who are our clients, have been receiving a royalty stream from this for a very long time, right? So there's a big pot of money that they can use that's empowered that community to be able to do stuff. Hire people like me, do lots of different things. That means that there's this kind of money that comes in. On the other hand, I'm working on another island in Queensland, Minjeriba, North Stradbroke Island, where there's been a sand mine and no royalties, zero, have been paid to the traditional owner, the Kwandamuka um, people there. And so for them to be empowered has required government to be able to kind of fund it through an economic transition strategy. Now, the difference is, and where I'm getting to with Mikey, trust me, I'm kind of closed the loop on this, is that because of the royalty funding, they get this constant amount of money, right, that's expended. And under we won't go into land councils and their agreements for funding and how to expend it, et cetera, but there's this money that rolls in, right? So I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if the, and this may be your question, which is why I don't know, if the Mikey actually was like a royalty for land, like I'm allowed to move across this country every time I tag on and off, but I'm going to give two cents of that transaction to the land council. That's what you're saying? That would be incredible, right? And that could be a model which would actually empower communities. You could track it. It would actually be viable, right? You probably Everyone's nodding because this is like you're already talking about this all the time. So, but why? that would be something where you can actually empower a community to then drive a different type of process, right? And then we as part of transport users acknowledge it every time we do something. It's part of the process, you know? I think that's, if that's what you're saying, then I'm, why don't we do that now in Victoria? Why don't we? But I think that right. that idea, that's almost, I think the more we think about it, you've got to take the power away from the politicians in commissioning the work. The commissioning needs to go back to the communities, really, because they then value those lengthy discussions or, you know, that, that, that relationship. Uh, my, my point is they can only do that if they can afford to do it as well. That's right. So, that, so you need to be able to empower them financially. And if it's not through land, because so much of Melbourne is freehold, that you're not going to get it back in a sense, um, then there has to be another model. So the royalty stream makes is the kind of right model because it, it, it's, it does two things. It acknowledges that we're on country every time we transact and that it also provides this kind of funding stream. I'm going to be cheeky for a second yeah. and pose more of a question just thinking about everything that's been said so far. You're saying there's risk involved in projects that are going to be here for a long time and so we don't take the time to consult properly at the beginning and we don't collaborate with communities and we need precedents and test cases that show how to do it properly. Why don't we do it with temporary architecture, Mr. M. Pavilion? Uh, and actually, like, what's the... Qu if you were briefing a international architect on this country in this place where this pavilion is going to be designed, what actually gets shared? What relationship is built? Maybe more of a challenge than a response, but you can respond if you like. So, yeah, I'm, I'm Sam. I'm from M Pavilion. And uh, it is uh, one part of the uh, rapid cycle model that is really challenging. So I'm conscious of that speaker. Um, that... Uh, to have these long relationships and conversations with architects that you bring in from around the world who are generally uh, well-established, uh, internationally recognised people with their architectural vernacular well-established as well, um, to then bring them in and insert them in this project 
in a way that can also engage with um, an Indigenous voice is a huge challenge. Um, and I think that it does go to the heart of this conversation about how do you re-engineer the entire process to do that when the first crux of that was to even make this project start at all and to, to cause the first M Pavilion to be built was in its own way a challenge um, to get the city and, and the state government and all members of the community involved that now that seems almost obvious as we move into the halfway through our fifth season. Um, yeah, it's, it needs to be re-engineered to find a way to make that voice happen. And you're right, temporary architecture is a really good place to do it because temporary architecture is so effective at testing and challenging models. Um, I, I take that on board. <laughs> Great, so we'll do that next year. Uh, and just after the Mikey one, is there another question? Or yep. Ooh. Hi, I'm Angela, and I'm from an engineering firm, and I'm trying to integrate, um, you know, Aboriginal input at the beginning, not being considered a constraint in projects. And so I really value all this conversation about including Aboriginal voices at the beginning. But I was also interested in the other side of like contracting builders or contracting drillers or whatever to. Um, because I think from an engineering point of view, it's something that we do. We already contract people for doing things. And if they could procure indigenous businesses in those tasks that they wouldn't have to do anyway, slowly we could build a relationship in that way and then start going back to the beginning and going, okay, well, why don't we consider indigenous voices at the beginning? So I just wanted to understand what were your experiences in um, procuring contractors and um, I guess also that other issue of, you know, if you procure an Indigenous contractor for a project that might not necessarily be appropriate or is that a thing? Yeah, I'd just like to hear your voices on that. Um, so I can say two things quickly. The first is that the Northern Territory Government at the moment is doing, it's going through a final round of consultation on what they're calling the Aboriginal Contracting Framework, ACF. And the ACF is intended because they understand that government contracting typically is done in such a way to try and um, minimise risk and time and whatever and they often bundle. So they'll take like a project, whether it's a bridge or a road or a, you know, whatever, they'll try and bundle the package of services, which means that typically very only tier one contractors can apply, right? And then the tier ones will then go out, because I mean tier ones now don't really build anything. They just project manage other people to build stuff, right? So then the tier ones go out and get builders and they do all the other stuff. And so part of the ACF is to try and work out a way in which you can then debundle some government procurement, uh, sorry, government projects and then also support um, Indigenous contractors to be able to have a kind of a, a steadier line of um, engagement so that they're not like on a kind of feast and famine model, which they typically are as well. So the NT government have kind of realised that one of the challenges for, in particular, civil contracting is it's like boom or bust. And that's very difficult to maintain kind of continuity in communities, especially in remote communities for employment and training and equipment and whatever. And so the ACF is designed to say, well, if we flip the model around and we say, what do we need to do to keep all of these different contractors running for the next 10 years, let's say? And then they structure it a little bit in reverse to say, well, what we're trying to do is empower people to get from being a, um, a very low-skilled labourer into the next tier and then the next tier and the next tier. So how do we build a contracting framework to support that, right? I mean, it'd be interesting to see if they can pull it off because I, I haven't seen a government yet pull it off, but... That's a model, you can go, it's a quite interesting website. It actually has some tips in there about how to deal with contracting and procurement because it is a big sort of issue. I think on the flip side, in much more sophisticated markets and the NT 
places I imagine like Victoria, a little bit like WA, you run the very real risk that the only people that can meet the Indigenous target requirements are very big tier ones who have all of the project management reporting stuff in place and then just employ a whole series of sort of Indigenous-owned entities until they hit their whatever it is. I think in Victoria, you've got a 1% target for all government spend or something. So that kind of black cladding challenge, in a way, in kind of more sophisticated markets, I think, is where government is really trying to hit a target very quickly. And the only people who can meet that target are probably a very sophisticated set of contractors. And that's kind of a little bit different to the ACF's intentions, I guess. So they're two different kind of models, yeah. That was useful or not, but that was my answer. Um, there was one other question, and then my bum is getting so sore. Who designed these bloody things? Um, can we get a microphone <laughs> over to this woman here? Thank you. Oh, okay. I'll maybe try anyway. Um, yeah, I think um, I work for a consultancy firm, and um, have um, a lot of people in the consultancy firm have sort of come quite quickly from lots of places all over the world, as well as there being a lot of Australians here, and. Um, we are working on some very big projects, and um, I think uh, the big tier one contractors have a lot of power, but I think they also heavily rely on consultants saying, yes, you're okay, here's your risk, or here's your not, here's not. So I think um, there could be a lot more power actually in the consultancy than we're giving it credit for, but I think the problem currently is that you, that DD phase, which is where the consultancy has its power, is getting really, really crushed. And I just wonder if there's a way that um, for sort of, we could just put education way more into these like consultancy firms that are all over Melbourne, um, just from an indigenous point of view, um, like now, like what, what could that be um, that would just give all those people who have got the, the, the everyday email contact with the people who have got the, the client connection power and what that, what that might look like? Or if, if there's a resource that we can, like, within these consultancy companies, like, go to now and say, we're working on these projects, we think this is important, and how can we get better educated? So did you have to do any cross-cultural training when you arrived in Australia? Very little, and that's why I'm here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's curious. I mean, um, we don't work anywhere unless we can um, have appropriate kind of cross-cultural training done at the beginning for the team. And... Um, and that sometimes is easier said than done, you know. Um, but I'd be surprised if there wasn't, if there weren't cross-cultural training organisations in Melbourne. I'd be like, be, my mind would be blown. So, um, it, it, in a way, it's a little bit like, um, I think you're right. Consultants do have an opportunity to empower the kind of process a little bit, and so do clients in the same way that writing in the kind of mandatory requirement for cross-cultural training to un at least an understanding for people in teams to know. The, mat, the place in which they're working and the culture within that they're working, you know, the, the, the kind of um, who has cultural authority over the places they're working. Those are the sorts of things. And you would just, you know, who doesn't want more CPD in their life, right? So it's just a matter of, um, I think you're right, but I, I, I'm sort of amazed that you haven't done any if you're going to be working in projects that, you know, have that interface. It's, it feels to me like it's a, it's a, it should be a mandatory requirement. And there's a lot of opportunities to do that. A lot of the uh, land councils have their own cultural awareness training. The Career Heritage Trust does walking tours. IADB does architectural uh, versions of cultural competency training. Um, a lot of the universities now are embedding them into their education processes. So when you first arrive, you do a 101 on Indigenous 
heritage, culture, living memory from that place. And then you have the opportunity to go on and do further modules face-to-face -face with people. Um, it's, it's all come a bit late for everyone who's currently working, but there are those opportunities for, to go and, and I guess, self-educate yourself or advocate for your company to engage in any of those sort of training. I think that's really important. Um, the, the other quite interesting thing that's happened in Victoria quite recently is there that uh, every year the Premier has these design awards and they, they're, they're awards for design thinking, policy, industrial design, architecture, fashion design, etc. They, they spread right across a whole breadth of design disciplines um, and there's a representative um, from each of those disciplines who make up the jury and I was privileged to be on the jury representing the architectural profession this year and was sitting there with someone from the fashion industry, someone from industrial design, etc. Um, and one of the, pro the project that actually won the, the strategy side of things was a project called the International Indigenous Design Charter. And it, it came out of Deakin University, who were the, um, the kind of instigators of the, of the idea. And, and it's, a, it's a very simple charter with about 10 key points that point to proce process of engagement, really. And I thought it was a really interesting winner of the, um, of the Premier's Design Awards because what it... Um, I mean, the intent of those awards is to kind of award something that might be a game-changer in its own industry. And what it is is just an idea about doing business with um, your local Indigenous culture. And there was all sorts of discussion with, um, with the Norwegian, with the Samis and, and, and the and various other, and the Inuit, the very, various other kind of indigenous populations around the world. The idea that it's very general um, and, and the idea of it just being um, a reminder of the types of conversations and the types of thinking that should be embedded in any kind of design work. Um, and I, I, th I thought, you know, that only happened a couple of months ago, but I thought, you know, that's quite an interesting moment for Victoria to actually give that a Premier's Design Award and I'm not sure where it's going to go. Hopefully it will go somewhere and become um, a message about process. I, I mean, I think um, just to sort of move towards a conclusion because my legs have now stopped functioning completely, um, having been on a plane as well for the whole afternoon. Uh, I think that in some respects, uh, that's right, should I do this? I think I'll do this. Um, the, it goes back to a little bit of the conversation uh, that I, it was, I guess, the point I was making with Sarah about kind of blackness. There, I'm very um, discouraged to think that our governments will drive this change, right? If anything that we've learned from the kind of Uluru statement from the heart is that our governments will just not listen at all, right? So the idea, what you would want is you would want government to start by saying, we acknowledge that there are First Nations peoples here upon whose land, who've never ceded sovereignty, we now stand and govern and do all sorts of things. But that's not going to happen in government, in my probably in my lifetime. And so it relies entirely, I think, on activism to drive something first. And that can take all sorts of forms. And I think this idea where we push for 
I, I remember reading something recently about gender targets in um, in government tenders, for example, or or the idea of um, uh, you know requiring certain quotas for you know gender. We've we've tr we've had that we're having that conversation, and it's starting to prove effective. I think what we need to be doing as well. Sorry, it's not working in government. It's not working in government, but it's. Uh, I'd go I the opposite. I, I sort of it is yeah. Working in government. Oh, it's working in in the public service. I should say in government. Public service, yes. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. government itself. Federal level government, not so much. Um, but I think we have roles to play as consultants, as agitators, to do it in different ways. That that activism can occur in different ways, and in a way, things like as basic as cross-cultural training within organisations and demanding that you understand where you're working, you know, um, of your employer and client, etc. I think those are the kinds of things that would then start to assist change quite, quite dramatically. So I think it's a good idea if you could look into those things that Sarah talked about. I don't know those organisations. Um, and, and see if there's something that you can do with your very large consulting company that you are connected to um, to drive change. Um, unless there's like seriously a burning question, no, great. Um, the <laughs> is there a bar here? Oh, awesome. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up. Firstly, what I'd like to do is to thank you all for listening. I'm very sorry that two of the chairs are of the people that you saw on your smart devices that showed very nice pictures of intelligent-looking blokes didn't turn up, and you were left that, with that only was one. Our gender balance, and we lost gender them. balance, and we were trying to get the gender balance, we couldn't get it. Just me. Um, so if you could join me in thanking our panellists, Jill, Claire and Sarah. Thank you very much. And we will be available at the bar. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.